Hey everybody, welcome back to another Photog Adventures podcast. I'm Aaron King. I'm Brendan Porter. With families and day jobs, we know it's hard to find time to get out there with your camera. So Brendan and I joined together and made the commitment to go out consistently and build up our landscape and astrophotography portfolios. We live in Utah and are lucky to have so many beautiful landscapes all around us. Not only do we have five national parks right here in Utah, but we are only a day or less drive away from 30 other national parks. So we created PhotogAdventures.com, this podcast, and our YouTube channel to chronicle our adventures. Come along with us to amazing places and learn from our mistakes and our successes. We hope that you will get out there too and have a photog adventure of your own. All right, it's episode 22. We're getting high in the numbers. This is awesome, 22. Yeah, it's just, uh, you just constantly do it. When you like think, the flowing river. <laughs> when you think about one a week, 22 means 22 weeks ago we started this. At least, I think we missed one week. Yeah, we did. So welcome to the podcast. This is the Photog Adventures podcast. And we wanted to thank everyone again for getting involved in that contest. Thank you for the reviews that we received on iTunes. It was awesome. Especially thank you for what you said. A lot of you were very kind. Oh, I love the comments. When I feel bad and blue, it's, I just <laughs> pull up comments from YouTube or from... <laughs> iTunes. I'm like, oh, these people. Uh, therapy. Let me go in. They here. have love. Thank you for sharing the love. And so I want to remind all of you who haven't yet joined us on the Photog Adventures Listeners Group, go to Facebook and simply search Photog Adventures Listeners, and you'll find the group. The group is private. We don't just let everyone in. Well, okay, take the back. Anyone who requests it will let you in. Find us on Facebook and just click on the join, and you can join the conversation. It's been a lot of fun sharing pictures, sharing adventures, and learning from each other. It's been a fantastic place to see everyone at one time and get the information quick instead of all the different comments on YouTube or the Instagram posts, replies. Yeah. I mean, it's much easier here. We love it. Speaking of which, um, we're going to share a little adventure that Dean Vincent had shared with us on hey, that Dean. listeners group. One of our admins is Dean. He's been fantastic. He's helped us out a ton. Dean, sometimes I see a notice that someone's joined the group and before I even get there, you've already accepted them. Thanks, man. And he went out and did this awesome little video and took some sweet pictures of this waterfall taken at Morgan's Cave in Otter Creek Park in Brandenburg, Kentucky. Kentucky, man. I've never been to Kentucky. No, I know. I haven't been to so many places in the U.S. <laughs> that I'm totally stoked to go and see more of the country because, yeah, it's just there's so many cool things. Yeah, I yeah. love these little super mossy green logs and the waterfall is just awesome it's yeah so when shot. we go out to kentucky as a listener group to hang out and do some photography there dean you're going to be the group leader man absolutely so that shot is really pretty i really like it and um i'm excited for you to go back in this location and get like maybe some more fall colors and there's a little bit more green or some other you know reds or oranges in there if you yeah, I think it's Dean had the so same cool. situation I had where you have a really cool photography subject, but then you have these really dumb, in-the-way, distracting side like banks the of, the, wa of yeah. the water. Yeah. I mean, this shot is fantastic. You have a million times better shot than I got at Fifth Water Hot Springs. At Fifth Water Hot mm. Springs, I had something I loved in the center, but without cropping it, uh, it, it had too many distracting elements. That's always a challenge, isn't it? Anytime yeah. you go out to a location, especially if it's your first time or even been there for a long, long time or very frequently, like you really have to know a place, I guess, to really think about it in your mind and kind of 3D map it. Okay, if I wanted to do this, but you have to be familiar with it. So it's really such a challenge to go out and find something amazing and magical the first time. But I think this log facing up the up the falls is fantastic. So yeah, Dean, you found good it. Good job, Dean. That's awesome. Have you mentioned the settings yet on the picture? No. So um, his picture, he said he set it for half second, which is which is really crazy because he got some of the nice like really white 
water movement in movement. the water. And only half without... a second is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's not. It must have been flowing very fast. He's at f eighteen, f eighteen, which is really high, and ISO hundred. So yeah, awesome, great clarity, great picture, great color. He talks about him as childhood. So I just want to read a lot of what he says here. I remember going here as a kid and being able to just go inside the cave. I went back to photograph it because I remember mm -hmm. it being a cool place. As soon as he was shooting, he noticed his exposures were changing, and he wondered if it was because the sun kept going behind the clouds, but it turned out he actually had his camera in aperture priority mode. Oh. Isn't, that, isn't the worst where you think you have it in this mode yeah, and you so get out there? you're setting your depth of field, and the camera's doing everything else, and so you're <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Why does my exposure keep changing? That explains it. Oh, man. He says he went into the HSL panels and turned the greens down because the moss was so crazy wow. green. Wow. Instead of saturating, he desaturated to get this awesome color of green. Man, that's amazing. That's a cool place. He says he's definitely going to be going back. So if you guys are watching Dean Vincent on YouTube, he has a YouTube channel. He'll probably record it when he goes back. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Dean. Thanks for sharing that. And today we are t meeting with here shortly with an awesome astrophotographer, as you already saw in the title mm. of the podcast, Ian Norman. Yeah, I mean, you first told me about the LonelySpec.com almost a year ago yeah and then we saw some of the devices he was selling which was just a, a sheet of glass that had laser cut lines in it that helps you focus on the stars so you know where you're an exact focus for your nighttime phot photography out shooting the milky way or shooting nebulas and stars and whatnot so yeah really you guys awesome haven't, tool you guys haven't seen this it uses a botanov mask i'm not sure how to pronounce that but basically it's this v and another line that forces your lights to have flares and these flares make an x pattern with mm -hmm. a line in the middle that line in the middle as you focus will move to the right and move to the left and so you have a vertical line down the center of this x and you're at perfect focus if your vertical line is a little bit off to the right or to the left it's not at precision in focus mm -hmm. yet and so this botanov mask on the sharp star 2 is fantastic for letting you put it in front of your lens pick a bright star zoom in on it and then see that flare happening and then just line that vertical line dead center of the x and bing you're in yeah. focus so the product's name is sharp star 2 we're going to be talking to him also about another one he's developing called pure night i saw this um I think Petapixel or some other website had oh, an article sure. on it. Yeah, Sharky James had him introduce the show a while ago. Yeah, okay, so that must have been what it was, him. yeah. And I saw this um, pure, night, pure Night Light Pollution Reducer Filter. Yeah, good luck That's saying that again. <laughs> he produces the, the Pure Night Light Product. Light Production. It produces light It and produces so much light. Way. It's amazing. <laughs> um, it's called the Pure Night... It's a light pollution reducer and a filter that goes over your camera lens. So that's pretty awesome. And they're just oh, yeah. square pieces of glass. So you have to have one of those glass filters to drop your this lens into. I'm pretty excited to talk to him about that and see how it's made. and oh, oh, How he how came up with the it. idea? Yeah. Like, I would even know there's a glass that could do that. And so I'm excited right. to find out. Right. So that's that's way cool. It's made from a material that I can't even pronounce. I'll try later. Mm -hmm. um, he's got his LonelySpec.com website. He's also got his LonelySpec channel on YouTube where he's got videos, some tutorials, uh, millions of views on his oh, videos. So jealous of this guy. He's awesome. He's got 25 videos, and we have 20 videos. He has 2 million-plus views, and we have 14,000 views. So maybe we need to do some more how-tos, guys. Do you guys <laughs> agree? Maybe should we do some more how-tos that might increase our views? And I'm excited to do some of those. We've only been around for five months, and so it's just growing. It takes time. Yeah, he's time. been on that for at least two years, so that's a big big difference, I guess. But what an amazing return on 25 videos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's awesome. So his most popular video is a tutorial on motion time-lapse of the Milky Way. 
And it has almost 700,000 views. On that single video. Yeah, I can't wait to get to that point. Almost a million views. Tell your friends, tell your wives, come to our YouTube channel, watch our videos, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't wait to talk to him too a little bit about the motion time-lapse because I yeah. have a lot of questions on time-lapsing. I'm mm-hmm, hoping that he mm-hmm. can answer my bull ramping question. And so this will be great. I mean, the guy is obviously well-known for oh, this yeah. one video. Yeah. So he's the right guy to ask. He's got so much information to share. I'm probably just going to keep my mouth shut and listen most of the time. <laughs> so you're not going to hear much from me, I bet. So we're going to record this separately so that we can talk to him and have all that time used up for the podcast. So sit back and enjoy, and we'll talk with Ian Norman. Enjoy the show, guys. Well, thanks again. Again, Ian, for joining us tonight on the podcast. We're really stoked to have you here. And especially, we have a lot of listeners who are on the East Coast who complain a lot about astrophotography just isn't for them. It's tough for them to get out. They have five, six-hour drives to find locations and small pockets that they can get away from light pollution. So we really wanted to bring you on, Ian, and talk about that. Talk about ways that people can avoid light pollution, how they can get around it, things that you've done, tricks that you've used to get around light pollution, as well as talking about something that you're selling this year. I know you just reopened your pure pure night pre-orders, but are you going to be selling anything after this? Is this sort of a limited shipment, limited process of dealing this product out to people? That's a good question. Um, so pure night is an idea that's sort of been floated around uh, my blog and by some of my readers. I had originally talked about a uh, a similar product. It's the Hoya intensifier filter, um, no. which is it's a filter that's just made for fall foliage and uh, the availability of that filter tends to be pretty sporadic. It's kind of hard to get. So one of the things that I wanted to do and it was sort of prompted by some of my readers was to create a square version that you can fit in a square filter holder. Um, one of those universal holders that you can put on uh, yeah. your entire lens collection with just a few adapters. I explored the idea of trying to source the glass and found different glass companies that could manufacture the type of filter that I, I wanted. And I wanted to make some improvements upon it versus what was commercially available. When you say you're searching for glass, I mean, I notice here it's made of didymium glass. I mean, do you start with, I need didymium, didymium? I can't even say that, didymium. <laughs> How do you pronounce that? I think it's didymium or, or Di. a didymium. Yeah, it's uh, it's the it's a combination between two rare earth metals, praseodymium and neodymium. Oh wow! And mm. uh, from what I understand, they they basically integrate it into the glass making process. So these two metals are actually like melted into the glass, and that's what gives its it its unique filtration properties, which just so happens to coincide really well with sodium vapor lamps, which happen to be one of the most prominent sources of light pollution around the country. Oh, wow. Mm. So you're saying this thing has sort of a, a dissonance with that vapor light or sodium vapor light? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So didymium glass is interesting because it was originally created for uh, glass blowing. Um, so when, mm. when a glass worker is working with this really hot molten piece of glass. They're looking at it, and uh, it's glowing red, red hot. And and usually it's so bright that there's no way they could look at it with you know uh, with with their their naked eyes. So oh. they actually have these special glass blowers goggles that have didymium glass. That didymium glass, it was it was basically tuned perfectly for that glow of the molten piece of glass that they were working with. When glass glows that color, that is a sodium glow. 
Um, and that's the same glow, you know, essentially the same thing that's happening inside a sodium vapor lamp when it's lighting, you know, the sidewalk. Uh, oh. Didymium glass was, was, was sort of originally purposed for, for one thing, and then it just so happens to coincide well with, with those street lamps that, that cause so much light pollution. Hmm. One of the cool things that, that I was really excited about doing these particular filters was that I was able to sort of tune them to my own specifications so we're running with a, like a really high uh, optical flatness, so they're going to have uh, you know really high clarity through the glass, and it, you know they shouldn't cause any sort of distortion or sharpness problems when you put them on your lens. Well, that's awesome. In addition to that, I also tuned the design of the optical coatings. So most of the time, when you buy like a square filter, they tend to be made of some sort of plastic, like a resin. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they're usually not coated. So if you're shooting in any sort of situation where you have like a harsh light source uh, against a dark background, it'll tend to cause extra flaring in your image. Mm. And so, you know, the, the, the prime candidate for that is an astrophotography shot with light painting where the light is sort of in the, in the actual photograph. Um, oh. You know, if you're sort of like uh, light orbs or... You know, anything where a portion of your light is sort of spilling into the photograph, mm. it's going to cause flare pl problems. Yeah. So I, I ended up getting uh, a very similar optical coating to what you would find on any, you know, camera lens elements is on the pure night. So that minimizes the, the reflections that it creates and it reduces the flare problem that you would have, you know, from a light source in your image. Cool. Well, that is really cool. So you put it you really thought it through that in case someone's trying to keep it on while they're trying to light paint a subject, like in your image here, I think, oh, where are you at in this one example where it almost looks like that, um, it's in California. It's probably Joshua Tree that you mentioned, but mm. you know that rock that looks like it's an infinity symbol almost? What do they call yeah. that stone? Yeah, that's uh, the Mobius Arch. Yes. Mm. Is this the Mobius so, Arch from a different perspective in your picture here example? That's actually... Um, not the Mobius Arch. It's it's in the same area. It is though. Okay. Um, yeah. It's uh. It's that one's called the Lady Boot Arch, actually, oh. and that's in Alabama Hills, California, which is near Lone Pine um, and Mount Whitney. And the Lady Boot Arch is just like one of like I don't know two hundred small arches in this in this area called Alabama Hills. Oh, oh Alabama uh, Hills. Yeah. Yes. Alabama Hills is is a pretty cool spot. It's an open BLM land where you can just camp. Uh, it's like open camping, you know, like maximum of fourteen days or something. But it's completely free and open. Oh, that's cool. Uh, that's where you were actually when you. Yeah, that was the night that you caught the awesome image of the space junk that was coming into our atmosphere and burning up. That's right. You were at Alabama Hills. Yeah, that was the oh. uh, that photograph um, that you guys are talking about, which is on the example page for the Pure Night filter. Yeah. Um, was made about one hour after oh. we saw the the reentry mm. of the Chinese rocket. Yeah, that was a totally bizarre experience. <laughs> I I've never bet. seen it like it. For a guy who's always out there looking at the stars too, to have that happen. I mean, we oh, heard yeah. about it from a waitress the week of or week after. And we're like, are you serious? We've been going out so much and we missed it. We did not catch it that night. Yeah, it, was, work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely like lucky. I like just so happened to have, you know, it's like my Sony a7S was on mm. hand, you know, oh. ready to shoot. And, you know, we're out shooting. Like what better, be a better way to be serious. set up. 
to, to see this <laughs> event, which is was relatively, I mean, it wasn't unplanned, um, you know, upon a little bit of research, like it was expected, but it wasn't necessarily planned to re-enter that early, from what I understand. Oh. Uh, I think they expected it to to come down over the Atlantic. Oh, um, where no so one would it see actually, it. yeah, it actually started re-entering over California, and I think we caught it, you know, right as it started. Hmm. We didn't hear the sonic boom until like five minutes later. So that means that it was very, very high in the atmosphere. Oh, probably really? just just touching, you know, just just starting to touch the, the atmosphere. <laughs> well, that's wow. so awesome. I'm so jealous. I mean, your video on there is your second most watched video of all your videos on YouTube. So it was definitely awesome that you had your A7S with you. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely a cool experience to be able to share. Yeah. I love, I love how his video says profanity. There'll be profanity in this video because he's got friends <laughs> in the background dropping F-bombs like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's my only, you know, maybe mature audience video on my, my whole, uh, whole channel. So. It's the Adult Swim version of Lonely Spend. Yeah, yeah. So one of the practical questions about Pure Night Filter that our listeners are probably thinking right now is, okay, so it looks great out at Alabama Hills and it really reduces some of that distant light pollution, but what could it do? And is it something that someone should consider for a place on the East Coast when they can really only get down to green, yellow on the Bortle scale? kind of light pollution right yeah i think it's it's definitely something you know worth trying for sure uh it, it's going it's going to make a difference in what you see straight out of the camera um now that's not to say that that you won't be able to work without a tool like this i mean i'm a huge proponent about simplifying your gear and you know really pushing the limits of what you you know what you have on hand right right uh, I'm usually not the first person to say, oh, yeah, you need a new camera and a new lens to, to be able to go uh, shoot astrophotography. But, you know, at the end of the day, we do know that, you know, better gear will make improvements in your photography. For um, sure, yeah. And, yeah, it, you know, the Pure Night at the end of the day, it's especially in, in sort of more of a mild light polluted area or, or a heavier light polluted area is actually going to make more of a difference than... Uh, what you would expect out of a place that's like ultra dark. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, when you have all this, these extra photons, you know, these, so the photons that you don't really want coming from all the light pollution, right. if you have a way of stopping them fr from hitting your sensor through the filter, then the data that you are getting is going to be that much clearer. You know, it's sort of like, just sifting out the noise, if yeah, you will. Yeah, it's a cleaner image, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and there's a few other benefits that it has as well. One of those just being your color balance straight out of the camera is going to be improved. Yeah. So you have less, you know, sort of stretching that you would need to do in post-processing. You know, so basically your your core exposures are, are just going to, you're getting slightly better data. Yeah, I mean, we're looking at the example here of the one where you see the core of the galaxy up high in the sky, and just the color of the band of the core, it's so much more natural with the filter mm -hmm. than it is right. without. Because without, you don't have that coloring, and you pull it back to make it more blue so it looks like your Pure Night one, you still aren't getting that color. You have to do more work to bring that color mm -hmm. back. Yeah, something to sort of think about is like when you, when you get, when you sort of... Um, have this like added color due to the sodium vapor lamps um what that's doing is it's sort of shifting the the image as a whole um so you know if you were to try to sort of mimic like what the pure night was doing in post-processing you would 
you know, you could probably try to get the color balance right and, you know, enhance the colors a little bit. But at the end of the day, it's going to be at the expense of, you know, some inaccuracies in like the relative tonal colors of any given portion of the sky. And mm. it's just not going to look, you know, quite as nice. Um, mm -hmm. One of the other things that I'm really excited to try uh, with the Pure Night and it's something that I'm looking into um, with my first production units that I'm testing out is using them on longer lenses um, to get some of the, um, like the real, uh, you know, intricate nebulosity in some of the, the, uh, the more prominent nebula, you know, like the Orion nebula, which is visible at this time of year, you know, kind of yeah. in, in the winter. So it's, 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 uh, a lot more prominent in the sky and it's out, you know, starting right from sunset at this time of year. So you completely read my mind too, going there with this question, because I was going to ask you if you think it would serve any benefit to something like your video. I rewatched it just recently where you do the LRGB technique to bring right. the Orion constellation back and all of the nebula there, Bernard's loop. You got the horsehead nebula cloud. You got the cloud that's on the, on the, on the sheet, the uh, sheath of the sword, you know, down there, the Orion nebula itself. Orion nebula, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, such awesome detail in that picture using just a 50 millimeter lens. And I was wondering if you thought using the pure night in front of that would have any benefit. And it sounds like you're saying you just are about to test that. I, I definitely think it'll have a benefit. And that's something that, you know, yeah, like I said, I'm, you know, I, I really hope to test. When I get back to California in this next week, um, I'm planning to go out. Uh, I'm not really sure where I'm going to go yet. Maybe Death Valley or Joshua Tree and uh, hopefully get some some really great test shots to, to show off, um, you know, need, need some, uh, need to give everybody an update on like what the real production version of the pure night is, is going to provide, yeah. um, mm -hmm. give an update to, to all the people that, that made it possible. Um, all every, everybody who pre-ordered it. I'm excited to get in there, especially since you've reopened pre-orders. I feel like I'm going to have a chance to find the funds in time to get one. You don't have any idea on how much time left we have to get in on this, do you? Your question earlier about whether the Pure Night's going to be a one-time thing, as as far as we know right now, it's definitely going to be a one-time thing. Ah, uh, right. Uh, so we, we, we have uh, a set quantity that we're planning on order. Since we we, we want to order this stuff, you know, for as, as reasonable, you know, I don't want the filters to, to cost like $1,000 a piece, obviously. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. When you're trying to make something like this that has all the processing that goes through it, uh, they do it all in batches, like the optical coatings and the, the polishing and all that stuff ha ha happens in batches. So in order for us to meet the minimum, you know, we want to just do it all together. It's, uh, we still have, uh, can I actually check my, check my stock here. As far as availability of the Pure Night, we're looking at just over a hundred units left to give you an idea. Yikes. Um, we've been getting orders roughly every day so i don't know maybe that gives you uh <laughs> at least 50 days left <laughs> yeah yeah we might yeah maybe we might, we might sell out in you know a month or two so hopefully is this, is this I mean, 100 100 total of each or of each filter uh, size? yeah which sizes do you have 100 left total so oh. that's yeah since we had so many orders of the 100 millimeter size um, it was, that was a little unexpected, actually. We didn't realize that that would be, you know, so disproportionately more popular than, than right. the mm -hmm. other sizes. Uh, we we ordered 
a, 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 lar- a super large lot of those and then smaller lots of the 85 millimeter and the 150 millimeter, which is now available um, too. Cool. <laughs> Basically, everything's being made right now. Um, you know, fingers crossed that all the all the production of those you know goes really well, and you know that we don't have any hiccups in the in the in the uh, making of them. Everything's been fine so far. We've we're really happy with the prototypes and everything. So that's great news. I mean, I really want you to succeed here because I love the Sharp Start too. I'm getting that this year, and I love what you've been doing at Lonely Spec. And so I'm hoping this completely works 100%. And I'm hoping that maybe someone has them on the uh, used market that I can mm. find some because I have a Tamron and a Rokinon. That's what I use for Astro. And the Tamron, yeah. you know, has a huge front element on the glass, and so you just really can't put many filters on that. So I thought I was going to go for the 150 millimeter to kind of cover my bases right yeah, that, w- that would that would be the one to to go for the 150 millimeter i am working on a uh, 150 millimeter version of the sharp star and i was actually using that lens that i assume you're talking about the tamron 15 to 30 yeah, yeah exactly the, the that i've seen in, in your guys's videos <laughs> oh, yeah. we've actually been testing a version of the sharp star um, made for that lens as well as other lenses with a big bulbous front element yes. to hopefully nice. fit in one of those 150 millimeter holders. Um, I've, I had also been exploring some ideas of a version of that um, that could potentially work without a without a holder, but it's looking like given the really short focal length of that lens, it's still probably going to require the 150 millimeter uh, holder system. So yeah. any of those ones, the like Nisi or the... Hide. Uh, Hada, yeah, uh, yeah. I think it was the Hada system that I ordered for testing out the mm. the Sharp Star Two on on the really short lenses like that. Well, that's the cheapest one. How did you like that it? Is, yeah. It's actually surprisingly good. Oh um, yeah. It uh, you know it's all metal construction and mm. uh, you know everything seems to fit pretty well. The threads on it were a little bit coarse, but with a little bit of you know. A little bit of use, it sort of kind of worked its way out, you know. Did you find that it fought with any filters out there that you were already using? No, it seemed to work. It seemed to work just fine. Um, I'm actually very surprised by the level of quality that the thing was built to for the price. Um, I, I expected it to be all plastic and, you know, kind of made out of Chineseium or something, but it actually, <laughs> it actually seemed to be. Uh, you know, pretty good. That's awesome. And if you didn't coin that phrase, I have never heard it anywhere else. And so that's I will... one of those things that engineers use for <laughs> things that are you know usually made out of not high the highest quality material. <laughs> Chinesium. I mean, I, I think that's, that's probably awesome. going to change. You know, in the future now that we have so many things manufactured in China that are excellent. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's true. Yeah. yeah, honestly. So the looking at just the Lee filter holder, it's $200 on Amazon through your link. And so, yeah, it's not as expensive as I was thinking, but man, it's such a nicer option for 120 getting that. Yeah. I, I wish our hobby was more affordable. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're telling me. You know, I, I, I think that you know, at the end of the day, there's there's always some piece of gear for somebody, you know, that, that most people can can afford to to use and i like shooting the the milky way with a smartphone just to see that it's possible you've really done it just in a dark enough sky area you've had it show up yeah actually so um there is a blog post on lonelyspec.com if you search google for smartphone and milky way in the same you know search string you'll probably find the article um but i i spent some time using a uh one plus one 
uh, smartphone, which is it's, it's it was like a three hundred dollar uh, smartphone at the time, but it happened to have manual uh, exposure capability, oh. and it, it could shoot a thirty second exposure. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, go figure in a smartphone. Right. <laughs> and, you know, of course, we're talking about like a sensor that's like a, you know, a third inch sensor or whatever, like really, really <laughs> tiny, like smaller than, than most point and shoot cameras. Right. And, but, you know, with 30 seconds of exposure and, you know, it's got like a pretty advanced uh, sensor in it, you know, uh, I, I think it used a, a Sony Exmor sensor. Mm. I mean, this is the same technology that goes into cameras like the A7R Mark II, um, you know, oh, back really? it and all of the, all the fancy tech is built into these smartphone sensors um and it did you know it did surprisingly well you got the full galactic center in there and uh yeah we're looking at it you've wow. got a light painted bush a yucca plant or something and then you yeah. have behind it a very cr clear milky way people pull out their dslr for the first time and get a shot like that of the milky way and are like yes i nailed it right no i wouldn't say it was you know the sharpest photo is very <laughs> difficult to uh to mm -hmm. focus uh, at night and yeah if it has manual settings does it have manual focus it does have manual focus um but it's it's it is quite difficult um so i just sort of set it to the infinity setting and you know kind of hope for the best yeah okay yeah there, you know there's, there's some more detail in that article um at, at the end of the day it's you know it's cool to see that it's possible um, you know, so somebody starting out that maybe they, all they have is, you know, a point and shoot or a smartphone. Um, I usually say it's definitely worth trying, you know, if, if that's what you have on hand, then you should, you know, go out and try some night photography. Cause a lot of the times you'd be surprised at what, you know, a basic camera can do. That's a good segue into the last question I have about light pollution, because people have the concern of being in an East coast area or a very light polluted area and say they don't have the camera they feel like is going to do the best on the ETTR option, or maybe they don't feel like they're the best processor. What would you tell someone like that? What can they do for astrophotography still? What are some tips that you give people in that situation? You know, obviously, the the first thing, you know, the, the best thing that you can do is find yourself a dark spot. But when that's, you know, not necessarily possible, then, you know, it, it's just a matter of going out and trying it and sort of not really being afraid of, of what, you know, what you're going to end up with. You'd be surprised at some of the situations that I've tried shooting in where, you know, I, I have like basically like Los Angeles, you know, in my shot and you're still able to see, you know, a ton of stars. And that, you know, that's not to say that you're going to get like the really detailed dust lanes in the galactic center. Um, yeah. But it is it is amazing what uh, a modern digital camera can can pull out of the sky. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, my first thing is, is to just go out and try it, especially if it's you know, your first time, you're just starting to see these photographs of the Milky Way online, and you're, you're, you're like, I want to try that out, um, but I'm really afraid that my DSLR, you know, my like old DSLR from five years ago, is is not going to be good enough. The answer right. is, it's absolutely going to be good enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the first step is is to really just go out there and try it. You know, as, as far as what you can do in in post-processing or uh, or with your techniques of shooting, yes, ETTR is uh, a great first method to try using, um, which is basically, you know, overexpose your image. Um, expose it right up at, until the point where you're not completely blowing out everything to white. What that's doing is it's allowing the camera to gather more light. The more light that we gather, 
the more data that we have and the more data that we have, the higher the quality of the photo photograph or the more that we can do with it in post-processing. Yeah. So on that method, when you're thinking about gathering more light, you have your choice of a longer exposure or maybe even turning the ISO up. Do you recommend one over the other or does it really not matter? Well, it actually does matter. Oh. Um, for the most part, most of those things tend to help, but there are there's sort of different weights that you can give them. So the first and, and most important one is your aperture. The lower the F number that your lens can go to, the better. And w one stop of a lens is going to give you more improvement in signal-to-noise ratio than one stop in shutter speed or one stop in ISO. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. And the reason being is, is because your aperture, the, the F number of your lens, lower the lower it is, the more light that lens is, is gathering, right? It, the, the more surface area that the lens is using to, to collect that light. And that's basically just pure light, right? Yeah, uh-huh. That's the only sort of factor that it's, it's adding to the equation of signal and noise ratio. It's, it's pure signal from the aperture. So uh, when it comes to shutter speed, it is pure signal uh, in terms of light, but the longer that a digital sensor stays on, stays collecting light, the more digital noise you'll have over time. So you'll get more noise from a shutter being open longer than maybe an ISO being higher? Uh, okay, so ISO is, is sort of the third one. That one's a, a, a little bit different than both uh, aperture and shutter speed, and it, it is very dependent on the camera. I saw that you guys are using a Canon 70D in some of your videos. I was, yeah, at one point. So Canon sensors have, for the most part, and, and there's some exceptions now, especially with their newer technology, uh, but but most Canon sensors in like the old the T5i, um, most of the older Rebels tend to amplify the sensor differently than say a Nikon or a Sony or a Fujifilm or an Olympus camera. Really, and they tend to do better in dark scenarios when you use a relatively high ISO. So they actually have a benefit uh, when you increase the ISO. You know up to mm. 1600 or 3200 um 6400 even um, yeah. will actually give you a benefit in noise and the reason behind that is because of the way that they amplify the signal that the sensor is collecting when they amplify it it uh, brings the signal above the noise produced by the sensor uh, or by the electronics after the sensor so they have some like uh, analog to digital converters and you know other amplifiers and stuff uh, along the way that eventually feed it into the processor and the camera. And all of those little electronics produce noise themselves. So the, what the Canon does is they amplify that signal before it processes it. When you amplify it higher, it tends to do a little bit better in scenarios where you have very, very little light. So mm -hmm. Canon sensors tend to do really great uh -oh. at very, very high ISOs. So like I used to use my Canon EOS 6D, and I would pump it up to ISO 12,800 regularly just because it, wow. it performed excellently at that setting. I shoot on Sony primarily now, and Sony cameras they really don't need to be pushed up past about ISO 800 for the most part. Even for uh, astrophotography or just in general? For astrophotography specifically. So yeah, when I'm talking about huh, this, wow. I'm talking about scenarios where we have very little light. Wow, so the Sony at 800 is pretty much as high as you would go on an ISO for astrophotography. Right, yeah. 
Um, and it, it, it depends a little bit on the camera and, and the sensor that it's using. Um, at the end of the day, the story is that there is no right or wrong answer, and it's going to depend on your camera. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, the, there is one sort of downside to using a high ISO, right? Like the, with the Canon 6D, while I would say it tends to have its best noise performance above ISO 12,800, the sort of downside of using that is that you have more have more potential for blowing out the highlights. Mm. Oh, yeah. You know, in really uh, bright portions of the sky, like say the Orion Nebula, for example, which is visible this time of year, like we were saying, if you're shooting an ISO 12,800 on the 6D, you're going to have more potential of blowing out that really bright nebula mm -hmm. so that it doesn't have any detail in it than if you were, say, shooting at ISO 400 or ISO 800. Right. Um, so it ends up becoming sort of like a little balancing game of where you are prioritizing quality in your image. If the Orion Nebula is just this like little speck in your image, you know, you're shooting <laughs> right. you know, maybe at a 24 millimeters and it, it's going to be kind of like this you know, distant part of your composition, then maybe it's worthwhile boosting that ISO so that you've got the sort of sweet spot for the noise performance at the expense of potentially blowing out a little bit of that, that nebula. So it, it's always kind of like a balancing act between preserving dynamic range and then getting your best noise performance. Gotcha. So you just base it on the scenario that you want to capture a good Milky Way shot, you don't need Orion's Nebula. If you're capturing Orion's constellation like you did in your video, you're going to want to make sure you don't blow that out in your stacking images. Right, right. And actually, um, it's funny that you mentioned that because that, that's actually one of the sort of criticisms I have of, of that particular shot is that I sort of wish that I had some data of the Orion Nebula that wasn't so blown out because it, oh. it happens to be a little bit blown out in that shot. I did shoot at a fairly high ISO setting, I think, on, on that that particular uh, example. Yeah, and I think you kept all the settings the same. You just took it 37 times so you can stack it. Right, yeah, mm. exactly. And that kind of goes into um, one of the, uh, I guess, sort of the more advanced things that I would suggest to people starting out with astrophotography when they want to sort of make the next leap beyond their, their first sets of exposures um, is when they they want to improve their sort of noise performance you know, or sort of stretch the capability of their equipment is to start stacking and, you know, combining exposures, which, you know, I'm sure you guys are a little bit familiar with. Yeah, and we're going to get more familiar this year because last year we didn't do as many stacking in our image. Well, really, we didn't do any stacking in our images last year. Right. No, and so really. we're definitely going to get more of that this year, and we're Just excited Star to Trails test it stuff. out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, one of the things that I really sort of come to like is, well, there's obviously sort of the, the, the exposure stacks where you're taking a whole bunch of the same exact image, right, one after another. Yeah. And you're, you're doing a stack for the sky and a stack for the foreground. Um you know, either in Photoshop or Starry Landscape Stack or one of the other pieces of software out there. Yep. So one of the other options to that is doing the sort of panorama stitching method as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. um, and and they, they sort of both provide similar benefits, you know, either doing a panorama or doing the stacking of multiple exposures. Yeah. Panorama stitching has the particular benefit of giving you a whole bunch of extra resolution. So, you know, if you're working with a camera that has, say, 18 megapixels or 12 megapixels, for example, which is what I use, uh, it's still possible to create an image that has something closer to 50 or 70 megapixels mm -hmm. by yeah. creating, you know, this, this panorama stitch. And that's sort of kind of become my go-to 
method for when I really want a high quality shot is to use a 50 millimeter lens, which, you know, every system has an affordable 50 millimeter lens that you can buy for it. Oh, you know, they right, tend yeah. to be about like, you know, 200 bucks at the most for the, the standard 50 prime. Mm-hmm. And then doing a series of images in a panorama stitch that tends to create a, just a really, really high quality photograph. And you do that even for a wide angle landscape scene with the Milky Way? Or do you only do that in certain tight scenarios? Uh, no. So that's the idea is that even though we're sort of restricting ourselves to this narrow field of view. Right. Um, you know, which is it's it's I think it's something like uh, like 40, is it 40 degrees or I think it's 40 degrees or so for a uh, a full frame camera, and then it's even it's even uh, narrower than that for yeah, an APS-C yeah, yeah. sensor. Yeah. You know, that's not a large portion of the sky. You'd have to, you know, you take dozens of images just to capture it, right? Yeah. So I, I usually suggest, you know, when you use a 50 millimeter lens, is to give yourself a stitch of of roughly four frames wide, you know, and then and then however many rows that you you prefer. I tend to do roughly eight exposures the typical things that apply to to panoramas you know during the daytime apply as well you know roughly 50 percent overlap and uh right yeah doing the that stitching is going to give you you know a whole bunch more resolution and the cool thing about it is that it's sort of emulating uh what happens when you use a medium format camera um you're, you're, you're essentially using a longer lens and longer lenses are larger lenses so they tend to collect more light. Like a 50 millimeter f2 has a 25 millimeter diameter uh, aperture, and that's that's really big. If if you were using a 50 millimeter lens and you were doing a panorama stitch such that you had the same field of view as a 24 millimeter lens, which is roughly the, the half of the focal length, it would be like using a a lens that has twice the aperture uh, size. And that's incredible. I've seen a picture of it on your site and I pulled it up right now because I remembered it on your tutorial on how to choose a lens. You show an example of the aperture on one side being gigantic on the 50 millimeter. We're talking larger than a quarter, like a, 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 a silver dollar size. Right. And then yeah. you have what is more like a dime size on the other lens. I can't remember what other lens this is, but... I think that's just a, you know, a kit lens, like an 18 to 55, probably. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's what it looks like, yeah. And so I can see, you're saying the huge benefit of going to the 50 millimeter when you're looking for quality is because you have this more wide open light bucket in the 50 millimeter aperture. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Oh, and, wow. And so... You know, the downside, obviously, of using a 50 is that you can't fit the whole Milky Way in the shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly uh, what I worry about. Yeah, so, you know, the, the the sort of first recommendation tends to be, you know, for the easy-peasy, you know, astro shot where, you know, we're taking a long exposure and and uh, we want to, you know, make sure we're actually fitting the Milky Way in there is we want something, you know, 24 millimeters or shorter for our lens. So we get a nice wide field of view. But with the 50, you're going to get, you know, just a small portion of the Milky Way. So the only real solution is to do that panorama stitch. Yeah. So for the, you know, the individual exposures, you are going to have sort of this, uh, you're still going to have noise in the shot and, you know, the, the other problems that you have to deal with when you're shooting with a, a wider angle lens. But by stitching them together, you're sort of condensing those problems like noise into sort of a smaller portion of the image, if that makes any sense. You know, we're we're hiding it by the fact that this image is now going to be, you know, 
50 to 70 <laughs> megapixels. Right. You're, yeah. It's almost like you're zooming out from the noise. Right. No, oh. that's, that's exactly. You're making the noise profile finer uh, relative to the picture as a whole. Especially Mopping. if you print. Yeah, especially yeah. when you go to print. Yeah. I notice that you know printing typically seems to smooth out a lot of that noise. And so you actually sometimes can get a nicer, cleaner image just by virtue of printing it. The loss right, yeah. of the printing is almost yeah. helpful. Yeah. Well, we have just been eating everything up that Ian's been talking about, and the time has just flown incredibly fast by. You can talk a little bit longer if you guys need. If you have the time, we'll definitely take it. That'd be awesome yeah. because this has yeah. been fascinating, and we do want to talk to you about time lapses. Yeah. And we know you have experience with time lapses. In fact, your most popular video is a tutorial of doing a Milky Way time lapse where you have almost a million views. You're almost at 700,000 views. That's so amazing. Mm. And so you put that video out two years ago, and have you had any... Well, let's see. Let's, let's try and simplify it. Have you ever used a Syrup Genie before? Do you ever like those for time-lapse photography? Um, I've used the uh, Syrup Genie in the B&H uh, Superstore in New York. I took a look at it. They had, oh, okay. had time-lapse set up, set up there. Um, but I haven't gotten extensive use of it in the field or anything. You know, I kind of kind of played around with it in the store. Um, so I, I don't have direct familiarity with that particular setup, but sure. I, I, you know, I'm sort of familiar with the capabilities of it. In your shots, you have a moving time lapse. So what do you use for your motion control during a time lapse? What's your equipment? I've used the uh, Dynamic Perception Stage 1. Mm. Um, which is uh, another one of the sort of more affordable kits out there to do time lapse. It's kind of cool. It, it talks to your smartphone. They have this thing called the NMX controller. Oh, nice! Uh, and you know, an app for the iPhone or Android, and you just sort of give it an A point. You know, you kind of like use a little controller to adjust it to the position where you want it to start, uh, and you set that as like the start point, and then you adjust it again to where you want it to end up. You know. Two hours later, <laughs> you set that as the end point, and then you hit go, and it sort of backtracks for you, and then it starts taking photos for for you. So when you say the end point, do you only know it by degrees, or do you get to know it by location in the sky a little bit more specific? Like, I know the Milky Way is setting in the southeast. I want it to end in the southeast. Right. Yeah, that's that's usually um, what I'll do to to figure out where I want it to end up is just sort of based off of what the Stellarium Sky Chart app tells yeah. me love that app um, yeah so you know i'll i'll sort of take a look at the sky you know where i'm starting and you know that's an easy thing you know we know where the milky way is going to be once we're out in the field and we can see it uh and then as far as where we want it to end up it's sort of just a matter of trying to figure out uh the rough portion of the sky that it's going to be in based off of an app um another good way to do it like another good guideline is to do 15 degrees per hour so if your controller says that your time lapse is going to take two hours to shoot, you know, to, to complete it, yeah. then make sure that your starting point or your ending point is roughly 30 degrees past where you started. And that, that rate, you know, assuming it's linear, should track the Milky Way pretty darn close. Well, that's something your engineering mind understands very quickly. I bet that I have to take a little bit more effort to figure it out. The math is pretty easy. We know that there's 360 degrees in a full circle, right? Yeah. And there's 24 hours in a day. And so the Earth rotates around 360 degrees in 24 hours. Of so course. if we take 360 and we divide it by 24, we get 15 degrees. Mm. And that's how many 
degrees that uh, the sky will move in one hour. Well, that is very simple math. Yeah. I'm glad that you got me there because I wouldn't have gotten to that simple part as fast as you just did it. So that's great. <laughs> so 15 degrees almost every hour. And if you know you have two hours of recording going on, you're going to move a full 30 degrees in the sky. Right. Yeah. So that's that's kind of like a good guideline. Um, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of motion control time-lapse sliders out there, but that is the recommendation that I would suggest is Use 15 degrees per hour, um, assuming you can set that on your motion control system, and that'll give you a nice good track of the Milky Way. Well, that's awesome. I was going to also ask you, because one of our toughest questions that we need to answer this year in doing our time lapses is we would love it if the time lapse at the beginning or even at the end, when you get that giant change in dynamic uh, Mm -hmm. light and you're dealing with a bloom at the end of your time lapse, you got to do bull ramping. And so when you yep. do bull ramping, what are you changing your exposure for? Are you ramping the ISO or ramping the exposure length or doing more of, you know, two or three of the exposure triangle at the same time in your bull ramping? That's actually a really good question. And um, <laughs> it's funny because that's like the one question I get most often <laughs> on that video that you guys are referencing. <laughs> uh, so I wanted that video to be sort of like a, a basic uh, overview of how to do like a, a very standard time lapse. <laughs> right. But I unfortunately open up the video with this, like probably one of my favorite sequences that is a, is a day to night time lapse. Oh and it, yeah. That's nuts to do. It starts in twilight, you know, blue hour, almost no stars in the sky at all. And then it ramps into, you know, full midnight with, the galactic center um, moving across the sky. And everybody keeps asking me, how do I do that? How do I do that? And I didn't make a video about that. Mm -hmm. There's a couple guidelines that I use for bulb ramping. And I actually do mine manually. Um, So I will periodically sort of check the camera uh, during the sequence and uh, adjust the exposure myself in between shots. I don't necessarily recommend that. Uh, <laughs> it sounds nuts. You have to be fairly patient, I guess, to do it that way. Um, <laughs> and awake the whole time. Yeah, that too. Luckily, the transition between, say, day to night or night to day tends to be fast enough that you know we're not talking about you know tending to the camera for like four hours you know we're only talking about like uh, yeah that's a good so. point the longest part of your time lapse is at night and when it's not gonna right. be a difference yeah 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 so you were ramping it down manually in this beautiful- i do it manually yeah i keep my aperture the same always oh okay. uh, and there's a very good reason for that and that is the depth of field changes in your photograph and that's something that would make a fairly jarring transition, you know, in a time lapse, it, it, it would look a little bit different from, you know, shot from aperture to aperture, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good mm-hmm. point. So like, you know, it, it would be a little strange for the four, you know, the foreground, for example, to start in focus and then like quickly come out of focus as I adjust the aperture. Mm-hmm. So the better solution is just to leave your aperture at the setting that you're going to use at night. So, okay. If you're going to shoot at f2.8 at night, leave it there. Use that during the day. You know that's that's definitely going to be the the better way to do it. Um, if you if you're using a lens that uh, you know if you're having trouble making a dark enough exposure, you know if we're talking about like a really really bright scenario in the daytime portion of the the time lapse sequence, then the better thing to reduce the light coming into the lens would be to use an ND filter. And then remove that partway through the sequence because oh. it's not gonna it's not gonna like change 
the depth of field uh, of the image, so it won't be as jarring of a uh, of a transition. Yeah, that that is a really really good point because we have a jarring transition in all of our time lapses we've ever done overnight. It just as soon as mm-hmm. the moon comes up, even or if the sun comes up, it is just how low bright lights. Everything mm-hmm. is bright blue, and you can't see anything. It's all blown out. Right. So now the whole transitions that I do, sort of the method that I've decided uh, to use is fairly simple. And that is you always change your setting by one stop at a time. Usually what I'll do is I'll monitor the meter on the camera and I'll look for where the meter sits. And so, you know, say we're going from day to night, as soon as the meter goes to negative one, you know, once it's like one stop too dark, then I will adjust. uh, Well, the first thing I do is adjust my shutter speed. So say we're at during the day, say we're shooting at uh, one five hundredth of a second, and then it starts to get darker, and we need to let more light in. Then I'll adjust it by one stop, which okay. is two fiftieth of a second. Um, and then when I see that meter go down another stop, then I'll adjust it yet again, and I'll go to one one twenty fifth of a second. And I'll just do this, you know, one stop at a time uh, as it starts to get darker. And I'll just do that all the way until I reach the 500 rule for stars. So, uh, you know, if we're shooting a 24 millimeter lens, that'll be roughly 18 to 20 seconds. That will be the final shutter speed that Mm. I let the time-lapse stop at. But you're still at this point, I guess, changing the ISO on. No, so at this point, I'm still at ISO 100. So we're talking blue hour here. You know, it's getting pretty dark. I'm still at ISO 100, but it needs 20 seconds of exposure time to give me a neutral exposure. And as soon as it starts getting dark past that, uh, then I start ramping the ISO. Oh, okay. And that's where I'll ramp it you know, from 100 to 200 to 400, just one stop at a time until I reach you know, my optimum ISO, uh, which you know, maybe is somewhere around ISO 3200. And then we're at our full Milky Way you know, exposure at that point. And yeah. then it's dark, and we've got, you know, let's say, F2.8, 20 seconds, ISO 3200. And uh, that should be exposing the night sky pretty well. And, and that's where you can stop until, of course, you were going to do your night today, you know, at at, uh, at sunrise. Right. So you let it run the rest of the night without having to manually watch it until you want to go and bull ramp back up. Right, right. That's, that's a great technique. Yeah. It's definitely one that, you know, like I said, requires patience. Mm-hmm. And right. my recommendation would definitely be to use a bull ramping device, something like, you know, Time Lapse Plus, and then... Um, I don't know if it was Bramper or something like that. I've seen something about Bramper. It sounds familiar to me, at least. There's there's a, there's a whole bunch of different versions out there, um, mm. many of which are also like cross compatible with motion control systems. That would be the easiest way to do it. You know, it's it's basically a robot that does the changes for you. Mm-hmm. Does it do it in the same way that you do, where you can control it by the meter and then just change the stops at that point, or does it have yeah, sort it, of a it does. And it, it'll do it smoother. So rather than doing one stop at a time, um, it'll do you know third stop increments. Um, that way, you don't have to sort of smooth it out in post processing later. Okay. That was actually the, the final um, thing I was going to mention is that with my sort of manual one stop method, you need to smooth out those transitions in post processing. And there's one particular piece of software that is the absolute best for that, and it's called LR Time Lapse. It's a plugin for for Lightroom. Oh, good. The LR is Lightroom in there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it it sort of integrates with uh, with Lightroom, and 
uh, it, it'll modify your settings automatically. It'll find the transitions, um, and it'll make the changes just super, super smooth. And it removes the flicker that you sometimes get in a time lapse. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. One of the the biggest sources of flicker in most people's time lapses is actually related to the aperture. So they let their oh. aperture. You know, like a lot of people will set up, you know, one of the auto modes like program mode or, uh, uh, well, yeah, program mode's usually the big culprit. Mm -hmm. What happens is that when you take a photograph, especially with an automatic lens um, that's stopping down the aperture, you know, every time you take a photograph, is that aperture, those blades that close on the diaphragm, they don't always close at exactly the right spot. They don't close perfectly the same every time. So oh, what you end nice. up getting is uh, little variations in how much light are actually coming to the sensor, yeah. and that causes the flicker, especially during you know bright sunny time lapses. People are like, "Where is the flicker coming from? Where is it coming from?" And it, it's usually that mm. the aperture doesn't always close the same every single time. And one of the tricks to that, uh, which is also one to be careful with is you can actually use the depth of field preview button, which is usually hidden somewhere on a camera. It's usually, right. yeah, yeah. it's like kind of on the bottom, uh, <laughs> on the lens mount, you know. they make me it forever to find it. <laughs> you know, it doesn't tell you what it does. But <laughs> right. anyway, so that button, if you look through your viewfinder, especially on a DSLR and you press that button, uh, you'll see the viewfinder get darker. And, and if you look at the lens and the diaphragm, you'll see the diaphragm close to your aperture setting. Um, so if you're doing your time-lapse sequence, you usually want the aperture to be constant. So you'll pick something, you know, relatively universal for the type of light that you're using. You know, if you're shooting just a daytime time-lapse, you want to use F8. And if you're shooting a night time-lapse, you're going to use something like F2.8. And what you'll do is you'll set that in the camera, uh, you know, F2.8 on manual mode. And then you press that depth of field preview button to stop down the lens. And then very carefully press the lens release button and untwist the lens, but just like a couple degrees. Oh, really? And what that'll do is it'll break electronic contact with the lens. And you'll usually see, if you oh. look on the LCD of your camera, you'll see the F number go from F2.8 to, to zero, or it'll say, Reading you know, nothing. Yeah, it'll, it'll read nothing. <laughs> but if you look at the lens, if you look at the front element of the lens and you look at the diaphragm blades, they'll still be stopped down. And that's a way to lock the aperture. It's a way to, to, to prevent it from opening and closing for every single exposure. Mm-hmm. And it'll just lock right in the same place every time. Of course, <laughs> you're missing the lens, so you're sort of losing a little bit of security. So in that case, it might be a good option to uh, maybe put a little piece of tape on it between it and the, and the mount just to make sure that you're not you know, oh. going to lose your lens of course right you bump your tripod and it just falls right off mm-hmm. right right <laughs> i've actually had a lens fall off of my camera um <laughs> it, it wasn't related to that but it was uh it was an unnerving thing watching it roll down the hill you know oh <laughs> how far gosh, did it yeah. roll what are we talking down a major hill and just bump no bump, it was bump. like tw- it was like 20 feet but it was you know it's dark out and <laughs> 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 and i think i just lost my lens like mm. This is not good. Uh, oh, the worst pit in your stomach feeling. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, it was dinged up a little bit, you know, on the lens barrel, but luckily it survived. Yeah, was it an expensive lens, or maybe one of the Rokinon lenses that are pretty much affordable lenses? Uh, no, the lens that I dropped was a uh, is an interesting one. It's a Voigtlander 20, 20 millimeter f one point eight, and uh, that's like a thousand dollar lens. So it wasn't yeah. like, not one you know that you want to drop. 
but <laughs> no, never. Survived. It had some dings in it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, still operated, but probably uh, affected the resell value of it a little bit. <laughs> well, that was awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. I mean, the tips, I'm still digesting them, and I can't wait to go back and listen to them and put them into practice. I would ask you more, but I fear that we'd go another hour and then you'd never want to come back on again. So I'm going to just <laughs> play it safe, leave us in good terms. If anyone wants to follow you, they know LonelySpec.com, but you mentioned your Facebook and other social media. Is there a social media that you recommend the listeners go to first to see and hear what's going on? I know that you said this year you wanted to even ramp up the number of videos you had on YouTube. Yeah, I think YouTube is is really... Um sort of that's my personal aspiration for where I want to be more often. Um, I've, I've been sort of shopping the vlogging gear and trying to come up with, you know, a setup that I'm comfortable with using in the field. And, and so, nice. uh, yeah, youtube.com slash lonely spec. That's my channel. And, um, that's where, you know, I want to be, you know, over the course of this next year, especially as we start entering Milky Way season, you know, we're almost, we're almost there. It's starting to show like in the early morning hours, um, and, uh, so yeah, YouTube is what I would recommend, you know, first, especially for my videos. Um, I like Instagram, you know, in terms of sort of, uh, the simpler social media, uh, I post about my travels and uh, with my fiance D- Diana and, uh, you know, you can sort of see where we are at any given time around the world. Uh, mm-hmm. we travel full time blogging and you know doing astrophotography and taking photos that's that's our that's our entire life and uh so yeah instagram's the great way to do it i've ha- i've actually met up with uh so, you know some people that have found us on instagram while we were traveling well that's cool and you know made really great friends and um so you know if you are out there and you see that we're in your neck of neck of the woods you know maybe give us a message on instagram and uh, and we can meet up. <laughs> That's awesome. If you can't afford a pure night filter, then maybe you can find out where Ian is and go hang out with him that night and he'll let you borrow it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, my Instagram is uh, instagram.com slash inorman uh, for Ian Norman. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely follow you right now. I haven't even thought about following you there yet. And all of you guys say a special thanks to Ian by getting out to his YouTube channel right now and subscribing. Thanks, guys. Oh, yeah, and I don't want to forget your other site. You have another website called north-to-south.us. What is that site? That's our travel blog. Diana runs the show there, um, and that you know that has everything about how we live our lifestyle. Yeah, you guys' lifestyle is amazing and awesome. I showed my wife. I said, here's another person like Elia Locardi who's out there traveling full-time. Can we do this? And then she points to our two kids and says no. So <laughs> it ends fast. Well, when we, whenever we have, have kids, I don't know when that's going to be, but uh, <laughs> we're going to hopefully try and, and continue, you know, continue doing this. We'll see. <laughs> so Ian Norman's not here anymore, but we thank him again. You're listening to this right now, Ian. Thank you so much for joining us on the Photog Adventures podcast oh, yeah. tonight. So lucky to have you on. So grateful that we have such awesome guys that have all this information, who've tested it out and put all this effort into learning these methods so that we can jump right into it much faster than you probably did when you initially began astrophotography. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Thank you so much. Can't wait to hang out. Oh, It'll man. be fun. So again, like I said earlier, if you didn't already subscribe to Ian Norman's channel, Lonely Spec, go to youtube.com forward slash Lonely Spec and you'll go to his channel. Subscribe right now. It's going to be fantastic. This year he's going to build more videos and so I can't wait to see what he comes up yeah. with. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, guys. This has been episode 22. And see you guys next Have Monday. Have a great week. Have a great week. No, I mean you already said it. 
I already said it. <laughs> Maybe you should do it again. Yeah. Hey, and have a great week. One more time. Hey, and have a great week. Do you want the hay in there? Or? Have a great week. <laughs> now say it like you're a monster. <laughs> have a great week. <laughs> now say it's sexy. Oh, I hope you have a great week. Now say it like you have a cold, but you're really trying to fake being healthy. Oh, yeah. Have a great week, guys. <laughs> Okay, your boss that called. That sounded like I was constipated instead. <laughs> yeah. Have a great week. Have a great I'm week, trying to- guys.